Hello and welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. My name's Darren and I'm here with Faith. Hi. Pastor Faith. And we will get to the sermon in just a little bit, but we wanted to make some time and space to talk about something special that we've been having on Sundays. And it's a new song that Pastor Faith, you and your husband, Josh, wrote, and we've shared it with our community. Tell us a little bit about it. What's the name of it? Yeah. And where did it come from? Yeah, so it's called We Need You. Um, and I, I'm going to root this in 1 Corinthians 2 when Paul says, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Um, the, the first thing that was written for this song was the beginning of that bridge section that says, We don't need better plans. We don't need clever thoughts. We need your Spirit, O oh God. We don't want the wisdom of man. We want we want a display of God's power, which is really what the world needs. They don't need to see a show, or even in the area of worship, they don't need to hear good music. We need to see a display of the power of God. So it came from that heart cry. And then the beginning of the song kind of sets up this space where we invite Holy Spirit, we open our hearts, we clear out all the distractions, the things that get in the way and then just simply cry out for more of Him. And it's this this longing to be a, a space where the Spirit would rest mm-hmm. as a community. Yeah, I love that. That's such a the heart and core value of Garden Church. Exactly. Knowing that the Spirit is present, like He's welcome to the party and we get to celebrate. And I so appreciate the beauty and creativity that you've been cultivating, not only with worship, but just something that we can invite the rest of our community into. And, and it's so cool when, when uh, in the recording of this song, it's the first time that we shared it. And it's like people have been singing it for weeks. <laughs> and it was just such a cool thing to experience. And so we're so happy for those of you that have experienced that with us on a Sunday morning. And we want to see just more original songs being birthed from this place um, that you're talking about, just being saturated in the Holy Spirit. So we are welcoming you to stick around after the sermon where you can hear a live recording of the song, We Need You, and I hope it blesses your heart. Garden Church Podcast. Good morning, Garden. You guys are here because you're one of the few people who aren't sick right now, huh? Praying for a no sickness zone in this church, that health would be part of what we carry. I know it sounds weird, but I just feel that we're asking for people to raise their hands for healing, and um, I was up front, and there was a a kid up here who raised his hand, and I was right next to him, like, hey, what do you need healing for? And he said, my speech. Um, And, uh, oh, gosh, I was pretty overwhelmed and prayed for this child who, one of your sons, um, and I just felt overwhelmed afterwards. I sat down with my wife, and I was just overwhelmed by the goodness of God and the kindness of God, and his love for that child in particular. And I was just reminded as I got up here that that's how God feels towards all of you. And I don't know if you're, you've been to church or you are part of this family, um, but I just want to let you know that the God of the scriptures is a loving father. 
He is a, a, a son who is sacrificial and abundant in agape love, unconditional love. And he gives us his presence as a sign of his love that's been poured out in, in our hearts. And so when you think about the God of the Christian faith, I know it's really confusing in moments where there's lots of political dis- division and arguments and history, but what I need you to know is God is good and he is kind, he's in a good mood, he likes you and he loves you. And I want you to hear that because God is passionately running after you. He wants a relationship with you. He doesn't want you to get good at reading the Bible. That could be a plus. He doesn't want you to show up to church because it's a, it's a ritual that you have. He wants to be in a loving relationship with you. He wants to reveal himself to you and pour his love out upon you so that you can live the way you were intended to live in the first place. This is his desire, and this is why I'm here. I'm not here to create a church with institution and rules and regulations and build this thing. It's because I have experienced the love of God, and it changed my life forever. And what I want for our kids and what I want for our youth and what I want for you is to know Jesus, to live in relationship to Jesus, not to do all the practices, not to do the religion thing, but to be in love with the presence, the person of God and to experience him, not just here because there's lighting and sound and amazing worship. No, wherever you go, you live in that union with him. And I was just reminded of that as I prayed for this sweet little boy praying for his speech, that some of us are not even willing to risk what we really want to a friend. And this this little boy with all courage, without without even question, was like, that's what I want. That's faith, right? Some of you are like, oh, I'm good. I got my self-help stuff. I got my therapist. I got my diet. I got Pursuit 90. (laughs) Oh, sorry, sorry, Zach. It's leading, Pursuit 90 is leading you to Jesus. So we're good, we're good. All right. Can we just pray just for that tenderness that you would experience it? Lord, I just pray for revelation of your beloved, your love that, that breaks down walls, that just invades our comfortable space of boundaries, that just overwhelms us with your goodness and kindness, that just takes over the whole house when we let them in. I pray that you would just disrupt the easy, the boxes, the lines that we have put you in and just overwhelm us in the season with your presence. I pray you heal my, my brother in the faith who asked for that prayer. I pray that he would be touched by you in new ways. And for everyone here that won't raise their hand because they've got it figured out, I pray you heal them too because you're a good father. Amen. Oh, I love you guys. And uh, we're in a series called A New Thing. And we are looking at stories in the scripture of what happens when God does something new in a person's life. Now, Bill tried to have this little clever thing like God's not doing anything new. It's like all the same thing. And I get that. He talked to me about that. I disagree with him. (laughs) Because, because yes, God has been about the same thing from the beginning, Genesis 1 and 2. And then when sin came into the world, he's been about the same thing, restoring it back to Genesis 1 and 2. And if you don't know what that means, I'll explain it in a second. But my point is that It's new when you become aware of the thing God's doing in the moment. Because there's never been a you before in that moment. 
So whether it's a very old thing that you're now discovering is an old thing, it's new to you. And this happens in history that God reveals himself like Moses, right? So God shows up to Moses through a burning bush and the shepherd pays attention to something happening. And in that moment, in his attentiveness to what's going on, he draws near to this burning bush and he encounters God. And if you were here a couple of weeks ago, we talked about this human Moses, this unlikely hero of the faith, fought, like brings all sorts of excuses to God. God's like, you're going to free your people. A nation will be set free from you. He's like, I'm, I'm not this, and I'm insecure, and what about, I can't talk, I don't have good speech. He literally says this. And then after four excuses, God's like, he's like, just send somebody else. And God's like, no. I'm sending you, but I'll send you with some people. But like this, but this encounter was the result of his attention, drawing near to God. Abraham's similar. Abraham's minding his own business. God shows up and speaks to him and says, hey, you're going to leave your family. You're, you're, you're going to leave your future. You're going to leave the stability, the comforts, the predictability, Everything that gives you a sense of purpose and identity, you're going you're to leave that and go somewhere else. And I'll tell you where we go when we get there. And the rest of Abraham's life is a story of obedience. God says something and he does it. At some point, he never grows out of that, that spiritual awakening, which is God says something and he obeys, no matter what the cost and now he has some problems along the way. He tries to control his environment and make it work. And then he doesn't know how much time he has because most of the time when God says something to us, it doesn't happen on our timing. How many of you know this? If, it's God, if you know it's God's word, you know, if you know it's his will for your life, the question you should ask is when? And then just wait. Because then you'll try to make it into something and then it becomes, you know, not God's work in your life. It becomes your work. But that's a whole other conversation. But the point is, these stories, and there are lots of those kinds of stories. I love those moments. The burning bush moments. Recently, I had that. I was discerning something. I'm going to share this next week. I was discerning something, and I needed to meet with God about this decision, and I did. It was like God shows up, and he speaks so clearly. It was that burning bush moment. How many of you had those moments where it was like, it was like raise your hand. I just want to see, like, you've had, raise them up high. At some point, look at, we've had these, we love these moments. <clears throat> but not but those moments are not the only moments God uses to do a new thing in our life. Like what happens when we don't have the burning bush moment? Are there ways that God, in scripture, that God awakens a people, moves a people to a new thing, not based on an encounter with him, but something else? And that's what I want to talk about today. There are often times where it's not an encounter with God, but actually an encounter with circumstances a confrontation with reality that causes us to do something. I, I heard a story of Christine Kane. How many of you know Christine Kane, this international speaker? Now, she was a well-known traveling evangelist speaker, and, and she was in, um, in Greece somewhere, or Macedonia, I forget where, in Eastern Europe somewhere. And she was going to speak somewhere, and she stopped in a, um, like the baggage claim of an airport, and she saw these signs all over the place. And there were pictures of missing girls. 
And, and it, she, was a, she just saw it and she noticed it. And she tells this incredible story. I'm, I'm going to not do it justice. But essentially, she's this very successful pastor, traveling evangelist, traveling the world, building the church. And the Lord confronts her with an image of these women, these young girls who are being trafficked around Eastern Europe. And essentially the circumstance, she begins to research, she can't get it out of her head, leads her to start what is known as A21 today, which is an anti-human trafficking organization that has set, that has, has re- helped free thousands and thousands and thousands of girls because she was confronted with something, an image of something that, that caused her to move. It's like William Wilberforce. How many of you know the story of William Wilberforce? Uh, one of the uh, upper class citizens who ended up working in the parliament in uh, England before slavery was abolished. He, as a young kid, went to a church and the pastor, John Newton, who used to be on a slave ship, uh, who got converted and became a pastor. He's written several songs you would know him, famous songs. But this, this small little parish that William Wilberforce grew up in was like had this mini youth revival because of John Newton. And John Newton talked about the dignity of humanity and the, the atrocities of slavery. And that, that, those sermons planted seeds in the heart of William Wilberforce. And he spent his entire life fighting to abolish slavery. And it happened near the end of his life where after years and lots of failure to get it passed through parliament, eventually before he died, right before he died, slavery was abolished because of this man's conviction. He was moved because of the stories of a pastor that left him thinking that this is not the way it's supposed to be. And that's what I want to talk about today. I want to look at what I'm going to say is, uh, I'm calling the sermon Lessons from Nehemiah. So if you have a Bible, go to Nehemiah chapter one. I want to talk about what happens when God begins a new thing through the awareness of reality not being the way it's supposed to be. I want to give you some, some actual practical things you can do to begin to set your life apart for the purposes of God. Are you guys good with this? Okay, I'm good, so let's keep going. Um, Nehemiah chapter one. I'm gonna read chapter one together. So if you have a Bible, Nehemiah's in the Old Testament. So this is a biography, autobiography. Nehemiah is, is writing this in first person. This is what he says. Um, it says, the words of Nehemiah, son of Hekeliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days, I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Lord, the God of heaven, this is his prayer, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins, we Israelites. 
including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even your exiled people are at the farthest horizons. I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeem by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was a cupbearer to the king. Nehemiah chapter one, the word of the Lord. Come on, are we there? Oh, it's a good chapter. This is the thing. So <clears throat> Nehemiah is a cupbearer. He's the guy that tastes the wine and presents the drink to the king just in case the wine's poisoned. How great is that? He's, he's a Jewish exile. And he, um, so, so let me just give you a little bit more of the backstory. So Nehemiah, um, when it's written, this is, uh, if you remember, uh, God freed the nation of Israel out of Egypt and gave them this covenant in Exodus 19. If you obey my commands, you will be for me a treasured possession, a holy nation. You will be set apart to be put on display to the world that I'm real. And all you have to do is obey my commands. But if you don't obey my commands, then these things will happen. If you obey, blessing. If you don't obey, curse. And I love what Bill said. That curse doesn't come as a result of disobedience. The fruit of the curse is in a life of disobedience. And so there is this marriage vow made between the Israelites and to Yahweh. And throughout the life, we see this in the entire Old Testament. It's like one thing after another. It's the story of Israel disobeying God's commands. They're breaking their vows. And God says, that's not how you're supposed to live. And so we see in the prophets, in the kings, we see kings live in obedience to the law and then they forget. Another king comes along and they forget. And it, you see this in First Kings and Chronicles. And God over and over again will send prophets to remind the people of God, this is who you're supposed to be. And most of the time, they don't listen. And as a result, judgment comes. And this happens before Nehemiah's day. Jeremiah is one of those prophets who's telling the king, you guys are living outside of God's will. There's destruction coming. There's an army coming. You gotta be ready. You are going to live in exile. And that's what happens, right? The, the, the king comes in. The Babylonians besiege the city. Nebuchadnezzar destroys the temple, takes the artifacts, destroys the walls, takes, kills the men, the armies. He, he takes the Israelites and sends them into exile to serve in Babylon. And it's in Babylon that you read the story of Daniel and those three other wise men. And you read the stories of, of these exiles who are living in captivity and some of the Old Testament prophets begin to prophesy about a day that they would return. So the walls were destroyed in 141 years before Nehemiah's day. So think about this. Nehemiah has never been to Jerusalem. Nehemiah, his faith is the result of a reformation, a reformation that occurred during Josiah's life, 150 years before the destruction, beyond that. 
and that his faith is the result of people like Daniel living in the empire with a counterformational lifestyle of prayer and holiness and storytelling about the truth of Israel and Israel's God. And Nehemiah has, for his, uh, for his life, developed a pattern of knowing about his true place, Jerusalem, but he had never been there. He is working for a pagan king. And that's where the story picks up. So this cupbearer, a thousand plus miles away from Jerusalem, hears the news about real, the reality of Jerusalem's walls. And he hears that it's been broken and his people are living in disgrace. And he begins to weep. He begins to mourn. He begins to recognize that things are not the way they should be. His heart is moved. I believe that there is a cry in every human soul that witnesses the despair of society or a person in living in crisis or pain. Some of us have become callous to it, but if you open yourself up to the world, there is inside of us this human ache in each and every soul, whether you're Christian or not, that knows deep down inside things are not the way they're supposed to be. This is a human condition. And let me tell you why. So if you're from another faith, let me give you the story, the backstory of that human ache that's inside of you. That is not a Christian theology. It's a human reality that you were designed to live in perfect, loving relationship with God. In Genesis, I'm going to read a couple of, thing, of, of these things because I want to show you something that's going on in the story. Take a quick detour. Genesis 1, it says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So our belief as Christians and the Jewish faith as well, believe that there was a God who reveals himself in history and through the scriptures that created all of creation. And if you study science right now, there was a time where science proved, quote unquote, the creation story as false. Now science is saying you go to a place and you keep going past quantum physics and they're realizing there has to be a creator God. If you, if, if you pay attention to what's happening in the world, there was a season where we're like, okay, we know that there was some type of big bang, bang that happened. There's this evolution idea. And so science kept trying to displace God. Now, the smartest people in the world have faith. Do you know this? That more people that study quantum physics are Christian than any other. That's, that's becoming the result of what's happening as we discover there's theories that exist that don't make sense to previous science. Our point, all I'm trying to say is that we believe God created everything. It's not some happenstance collision of atoms in history that actually God spoke and things became into existence. And the story goes on. It says, verse 10, God called the dry ground land and uh, gathered water, the gathered water, waters he called seas. And then he says, and God saw that it was good. Genesis 1, verse 26, um, that word good, I want, I want to highlight. It goes on, he creates the rest of creation. It says, let us make mankind in our image and in our likeness. So they created, uh, so he created them that they may rule. Verse 27, it says, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Verse 28, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish and the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Verse 31, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. 
You say very good. So here's the thing. We were designed to live in shalom. We were designed to live in perfect loving relationship with God, ourselves, and all of creation. You should know this. This is how it was intended to be. When God sees what he created, he says it was good. Over and over again throughout Genesis 1, he will say he creates these animals. It was good the fourth day, the fifth day, the sixth day. And then he sees humans and he's like, oh, it's very good. This Hebrew word good is so important. I want you to focus on it because Nehemiah, talks about this in the next moment. So just stay with me. Nehemiah, we'll, we'll talk about good in a second, but he, uh, the Hebrew word is so rich. Uh, this word good is translated to merry, pleasant, usable, e- efficient, beautiful. When God says he sees that it was very good, some translation says uh, it's working for its desired purpose. That good is beautiful. It's beauty. It's art. It's functional and it's beautiful. It's efficient, but it's also pleasant. It's to do good. It's to be good. Um, Another translation says that the word has so many implications, it's hard to define it, but uh, the word it is good in Hebrew is to reflect a state of happiness, well-being, prosperity for his people. So the word, the Hebrew word is tov, and tov is used all over the place. And there's this innate human desire to reflect God's goodness into the world. And when we begin to care for creation, when we begin to care for people who are hurting, when we take in the orphan or the widow, when we act uh, out of the goodness of our character, in some ways, all we are doing as humans is reflecting the image of God back into creation. Are you guys with me on this? So there's two things I'm trying to contrast. We are aware that things aren't the way they're supposed to be. But there's also something inside of us that when we begin to operate towards the healing of this thing, the, the, the justice of this injustice, the mercy or the compassionate work, the, the making things work right, the beautiful, that when we do that, we're simply being the humans God created us to be in the first place. Tov. We're operating out of this sense of shalom, this purpose that God designed us in Eden to live in a way that reflects his image, his character, his nature to the rest of the world. Are you with me? And in fact, what I would like to argue is that almost every story in scripture in some way is the story of someone going along with God's goodness or good work and becoming a blessing in that or doing the opposite. That what you see are the stories in the Bible are people who choose to step into, I will, be, I will follow you, God, as Abraham, and I will become a blessing to the nations in my existence. Or in Nehemiah's case, I become aware of the circumstances that aren't the way they're supposed to be, and now I will redirect my life's purpose for the goodness of God to flow through me. Are you guys with me? So you're like, okay, maybe. So let's go back to Nehemiah. Nehemiah's never been to Jerusalem. He's generation after generation living in exile. He works for a pagan king as a cupbearer, no real power. He hears a report and it breaks him. He knows that it's not the way it's supposed to be. A thousand miles away, working for a pagan king, a servant to the king chooses he has to do something about this issue. It's a heroic moment. What does Nehemiah do? I want to show you some insight. Number one, 
Nehemiah redirects his attention for God's purposes. I was thinking about spiritual awakening. I actually think that one of the, the, the beginning of spiritual awakening for us will be taking our attention and bringing it to the Lord. So what happens when you hear news? What happens when your friend betrays you and you're filled with emotion? You're filled with all sorts of thoughts. You're, you're thinking of your collection of injustices of the harm that's been done to you. When, when the news says this is what's going on in the world and you feel motion and your thoughts are flooded and your anger comes out and the disappointment comes out and you have all these things. What we do in our society is we keep that emotional state alive, don't we? We, we, we post, we, we read more news. We, we, look, we, we Google something and find out more information. We begin to collect this perpetual state of chaos inside of us. We go to our friends. Can you believe, or it's usually not, you start boxing. Hey, could you believe Voice memo. Can you, we don't even talk on the phone anymore. We don't have time for that. We voxer and voice, we text. Nehemiah shows us. Probably this is the most important thing you can hear from me today. That when you feel something, when your emotions are out of control, when your thoughts are overwhelmed, when circumstances are paralyzing you, I can't turn on the news to think about all the injustice going on in the world. He brings his attention to God. He goes, he's, he's not gonna, I'm not gonna go to the Lord with my phone. I'm gonna go to the Lord and bring my emotions. I'm gonna fast. I'm gonna create space for these feelings to come out, not on my spouse or my kids, but to Jesus, to the Lord. I'm gonna bring the mourning, the inconsolable tears of things not being the way they're supposed to be. I'm gonna bring it to Jesus. And it's in this in this encounter, in this attention that goes, feelings and thoughts and, and ideas, he brings them to the Lord. I love what James says in James um, chapter four, verse eight. It says, come near to God and he will come near to you. He just says, I'm gonna bring it to you. So he begins to fast, he begins to pray. He redirects his attentions. We are so undisciplined, so busy, so hurried. We lack any intentionality of actually creating space to just be with God. What does your quiet time look like? I mean, we don't talk about this anymore, quiet time. Do you have a quiet time? I mean, it seems so Christian-based. Do you have a set time every day that you're with Jesus? Yeah, I read, you know, utmost for his highest. The Jesus Calling book, you know, three minutes a day. Are you kidding me? How are you going to combat the formation of the world that's coming at you with all of the technology at your disposal? three minutes of utmost from have you learned to feast in the presence of Jesus and delight in his presence and understand your belovedness without performance, without condition, just be with God. Do you have a time where that's the case? Nehemiah brings his attention to the Lord and look at what, and then he begins to pray. So he brings his prayer and it, his, the content of his prayer is so significant. I could spend the entire time on the content. I'm just going to highlight it. He prays out the character of God. He's, this is who you are. It's so brilliant. It's like the ultimate argument. You say this, and then he prays scripture. 
Did he have a Bible app that gave him scripture? No, he's, he's memorized the stories of the text. He knows that, the, that Moses says that if you disobey, this will happen. But if you obey, even the exiles like Nehemiah, a thousand miles away, will be gathered. He's drawing his attention from the word to God and saying, this is who you are. Be faithful to your promises, God. I remember when we made a decision to sell our house and give money away. Uh, it was a really risky thing. Alex was, Amos was three months old and it was crazy. Um, I had this passage that said, uh, <laughs> in Mark, that said, uh, basically, if you, um, how much more, I'm going to not even quote it. I'm going to just go there in the Bible because this is just happening in real time. I know the passage though, so you're lucky. I'm not going to wait. Mark chapter 10. It says this in verse 29. It says, um, Truly I tell you, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mothers or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields along with persecutions, okay, and in the age to come eternal life. I, I remember going to Jesus with that text going at least a hundred times as much. I'm leaving this for you. you you're called, give it a hundred times as much. I was bargaining with God. You said it. I'm gonna, how many of you have that audacity? How many of you know when Jesus teaches prayer, he's talking about audacity? It's so shameless. He's become the kind of kid that when you go into the father's house, you're like, I'm taking this with me home. Let's go. <laughs> Yeah, I brought my laundry, mom, do the laundry, make, I want the meal, and I'm taking some of this food and this, I'm taking all of it. That's what Nehemiah shows. He brings his prayers, but notice, so he's like, okay, all these things, and then he confesses, oh, he confesses the sins of Israel as if they were his own. So much of our arguing as Christians today is blaming the other side. Oh, Lord, forgive them, because that's me too. Forgive us. We're, I will take responsibility for their sin. Have mercy. That's when revival starts. Have mercy. Do something. Now, this is where it gets really interesting. Because you're like, okay, this dude's a, a thousand miles away. He's a cupbearer. Most scholars think he's a eunuch. So he's got this role in this pagan city. And, and his prayer is at the end. It's at the end of Nehemiah. He says, uh, verse chapter one, he says uh, all this stuff. And he says, give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this king. What does he do? Nehemiah reflects on the fact that um, something's wrong in the world a thousand miles away. And then he says, God, give me favor in my workplace. Check this out, right? There's injustice a thousand miles away. Lord, give me favor. This word is a feeling of love. Uh, mercy, tender affection, compassion. He begins to pray that when he goes now into the workplace, when he begins to step into his daily life, where he has some type of authority, he's asking from God to have favor in his workplace. It's not 
hey, God bless what's happening over there a thousand miles away. I'm going to tweet something. I'm going to post an Instagram post to make people know I'm aware of this injustice. It's, Lord, now that my attention has been redirected, Lord, would you redirect my work for your purposes? Do you see? He's moved by the circumstances of reality. And now he's saying, God, redirect. He's redirected his attention. Now he's saying, redirect my vocation for your purposes. I don't really know how to get a thousand miles away, but would you give me favor, blessing, your, your pleasure? Would you give me success in my daily work for your purposes? And then, then this is what happens. You guys good? In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, that's his job. I'm going to bring the wine. I tested it. I'm not going to die. There you go. I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had, not been see, I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look sad, so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid. I love that line. He, he's asked the Lord for favor. He's now wearing his heart on his sleeve, right? He's, he's downcast, sad in heart. The king, who could probably, some scholars say, had him killed for looking sad. Now he engages, and look what happens. He says, I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? It's this moment. I was very much afraid. What is it that you want? So he says, then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. How many of you know that when God is doing something new, it will always bring up your fears and insecurities and self-doubt? It will never be the easy way. Every time, it will cause you to question your very existence. It will change your personality when you walk into the workplace because there's this thing God revealed. And now it's not just my vocation. It's God's purpose is flowing through me. It's no longer me in the room. It's me and God in the room. And that this is what God's looking for. Nehemiah's who will redirect his work. Nehemiah who will redirect his work his vocation for the purposes of God. Now, Nehemiah begins to see that this little cupbearer has the power to change the world, to flip the power structures upside down because he has met with Jesus or he has met with God. And he walks in the favor of God. He's walking in anointing. He's walking in obedience. He's walking in sacrifice. And now God uses him to flip the power structures upside down. It's called kingdom dynamics. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. It's what happened when Paul's a prisoner on a boat and they're about to be shipwrecked. And Paul, the prisoner going to Rome, is giving orders to the captain and his prisoner uh, guard. You read this in Acts chapter 26, 27, 28. The prisoner becomes the person in a charge. Not because he has the position, but because he has the authority. Joseph is a prisoner, and then he can interpret dreams. And next thing you know, he is now working as the right hand to the Pharaoh. Prisoner to the Pharaoh council. Not because of 
the position of fighting like the world, but because the authority out of obedience and favor that God loves to flip the world upside down. This is Nehemiah's moment. This is Nehemiah's moment. Some of you, if you learn to redirect your work for God's purposes, he will make you, he will empower you to give decisions to CEOs and kings and your boss without having a position. Nehemiah says, verse four, it says, then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. If it pleases the king, the word pleases is the word tov. If it is good, the king, and if your servant has found favor in sight, favor and good, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Audacity changed by an encounter with God after he heard the news. He prayed to the God of heaven and then he answered. He said, Lord, if, uh, if it pleases the king, if it is good. Deut- How many of you know Deuteronomy 6.18 says, do what is right and good, Tov, in the Lord's sight so that it may go well with you and you may go in and take over the good land the Lord promised an oath to your ancestors. He asked for favor for the king and when the king enters into dialogue with him, he says, send me to rebuild it. And then the story goes on. It says, then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked, how long will your journey take? And when will you be back? Now here comes the details, the strategy. If it pleases the king to send me, so I set a time. He's like, all right, this much time. I also said to him, listen to this. This is audacity. I love it. If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors so that they may provide me safe conduct until I arrive? And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the, great, because the gracious hand of God was on me, the king granted my request. So I went to the governors and gave them the king's letters. And the king had also sent army officers in Calvary with me. Send me to rebuild the walls. It's enough to get permission. And then he says, also resource me with the king's treasury. (laughs) So now the nation that destroyed the temple and the gates is now the nation funding the the renovation project because of Nehemiah's request. Do you see this? Do you see what God's after throughout history? He's looking for people people who will first learn to redirect their attention to him. The world's going crazy. You're you're moved, you're overwhelmed. Bring that to God. Second, I'm not asking for big change. Just redirect your vocation to me for my purposes. I think this is what God's asking of you. You wanna be a part of some epic movement. Start by letting your workplace be the center for his activity in the world. If you're homeschooling kids, let redirect the homeschool life, which is in many ways deliverance ministry at its best. <laughs> Just kidding, it's amazing. It's, it's a mixed bag. Like all vocations, it's a mixed bag. Redirect it for God's purposes. Pray for favor from the Lord. And live in obedience to the attention as God speaks to you in your quiet time. Then go into your workplace, redirecting your ideas, your thoughts for his purposes. Your work becomes his work through your good deeds. Are you with me? And then even a a much scarier step, which I want to challenge all of you to. 
as God begins to do a new thing, he redirects your attention, your vocation. Then he redirects your resources. What Nehemiah does is he says, look, my life is now at your disposal. He will travel a thousand miles to complete a task that wasn't completed for 141 years. It will take him 52 days to finish the walls. Do you know that? Do you think he had an engineering degree? Do you think he had Google to help him with how to make good bricks? How do you build a wall? He didn't have... He didn't have that. Neither Moses had no idea what he was doing. Abraham, no. Let me give you a secret. Nobody knows what they're doing. We're all flying by the seat of our pants. But he redirects his resource. Now, I want to say this, because resource is money. Yes. Some of you have never redirected your resources for God's purposes. The idea of tithing, like I'm going to give 10%. No, it's all his. He might let you have 90 You have to understand that all of the resources you have, your money, your time, your talent, your intellect, your experience, your relationships, all of those are your human, your resource. And those are not just for your pleasure and enjoyment. Yes, it is for those things. It's for God's purposes of building out his kingdom. You don't earn favor by giving more away, but you step into blessing as you give more away. Because Jesus says it's better to give than to receive. Do you believe it or not? So Nehemiah now, he redirects his attention. He redirects his, his vocation workplace, but then he redirects the resources he has access to. This isn't for my retirement. This isn't for my comfort as a cupbearer. The next place I'm going to be is, I don't know, like, I don't know what's next as to cupbearer. I don't have a joke. <laughs> uh, maybe that's as far as he can go, you know? It's the steak eater. I, I don't really know what it is, but he's drinking wine. How great is that? That's a good gig, right? Like he's chasing the, the king's wine, right? Like that's a great job to have as an exile, right? You're getting good service, probably air conditioned, you know, you have indoor plumbing at that point. Like you're talking, it's smooth sailing. But when you redirect your purpose for God and your attention, he might cause you to step out of what's easy and comfortable and take a huge risk. Now, your life is his. And then when you do, you bring all of your resources with you to rebuild what God wants. I want to say to you today that God's looking for Nehemiahs. He's looking for rebuilders. He's looking for people who embody his character, who know his voice and obey, who will let their lives be put on display wherever you are and for the purposes of God. He's looking for stay-at-home moms. He's looking for graphic designers. He's looking for students, for teachers, for CEOs, for businessmen and women to live in such a way that rebuilds the kingdom, the great cathedral of creation right now. And you're not trained in it. You're overwhelmed by the idea of it, but it doesn't matter because it's his word for your life. Some of you are Nehemiahs rebuilding the future of the education system right now. You're Nehemiah rebuilding a church that has been embedded with capitalism and consumerism and politics and, and you're, God is creating a holiness movement again where it's, it's, it's embracing the commands of God as a gift, not as a burden. 
I believe God is going to release Nehemiah's men and women who will rebuild his kingdom here and now in places that are so dark and twisted. Um, and it doesn't look like the movements of old. It's a new thing. Are you with me? So this is all I want to say. Three things I want, to, want you to walk away with and I challenge you to do. Redirect your attention. I know that this, the next month and a half is crazy time for most of us. It's so busy. We're so full. We have no space. Make margin in your life to be with Jesus. Don't do it to be with the Bible. Do it to be with the presence of the King. Redirect your work. What do I mean by that? Offer your work as a sacrifice of worship. Tomorrow morning on Monday, as you drive to the office, Lord, may this be the place of God encounters. May this be the place where you build your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. As I manage this small team of two, as I step into the school of kindergartners, the lion's den, and manage, <laughs> let me remain pure in heart. <laughs> right? This is so true. Or when you go home, Lord, may my home be rededicated to you. May all the things that we give ourselves to as a family be put on the altar of worship for you. May you be honored by what we watch, by what we say, by how we host, by our time, and then redirect your resources. That's your money. Are you using your money for God's purposes or for your pleasure? This is so hard to talk about. But because we're all guilty and it's not like a works of righteous, it's not about, hey, you all have to give us a certain amount. It's about your heart saying, God, what are you saying to me in the season? Is this what generosity looks like? Are all of my resources being available to you or am I holding back my time? Am I holding back this area of my life? I just want to ask you to redirect it for God's purposes. Amen? And let me say this to close. You have to be here next week. We have a big Vision, Family Sunday next, next week. I'm not going to tell you any details. There's a huge announcement coming, so don't miss next week. Can you stand as we pray? Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit garden.church.
Stir up the fire. Oh. 